Well, this is where we've come from. We carry on our series in the book of Genesis. Next week we look at the flood, but this week we're in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. I'm going to read from uh, chapter 5, verse 32, to chapter 6, verse 8. So you'll find the reading on page 8 of our church Bibles. That's Genesis chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 32. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married many of them, any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. For they are mortal, their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I have regretted that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our sins, though they are many, your mercy is more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those uh, truthful words. And yet to appreciate the depth of your mercy... We also need to recognise the depth of our sins. But help us to go away remembering that though our sins are many, your grace, your mercy is always, always more. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So if you could have that passage from Genesis chapter 6 open in front of you, that would be great. It has been rightly observed, in my view, that next to a knowledge of God, a knowledge of who we are is by far the most important truth a person can possess. According to one German novelist, the true profession of a man is to find his way to himself. Who are you? This is arguably the most important question facing people in Western Europe today. The English zoologist Desmond Morris famously observed that there are 193 living species of monkeys and apes. 192 of them are covered in hair. The only exception is the naked ape, self-named Homo sapiens. Now it is undeniable 
that we humans are part of the animal kingdom. But the book of Genesis maintains that we are much more than just naked or hairless apes. We have been set apart from all other creatures because we have been uniquely made to reflect something of the image of the living God. The one true and living God. Uh, but according to Genesis chapters four, chapters 3 and 4, things have gone badly wrong because our representatives in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, cheated on God by breaking their covenant with him. So this world has become a broken place. Human beings, you and I, have become broken, restless Lost people. Uh, Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 begins a new section in the book of Genesis. And is literally the account of humankind post these traumatic events. The word Adam in verse 1 is a word that means mankind or human being of chapter 5 verse 1. It's as if. Through Moses, God is saying, let me tell you about humanity. Let me help you to know yourself. To find your way back to me and to yourself. But this is not just an exercise in anthropology or sociology. This is not... A David Attenborough documentary with research photographers embedded in a secret hide somewhere while delivering human conclusions on Homo sapiens. Genesis is much, much more than a human document. It is God's word to us. And therefore, his expert analysis of the data, as well as a devastating prognosis on the human condition. And this comes to us relentlessly in chapter 5, you may remember, with that constant refrain, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, over and over and over again. Death, we learned, reigned even over the godly line carried on through Seth after his brother Abel was murdered by Cain. The seed of death is everywhere and in everyone. Yet mercifully, we saw how Enoch stood out in chapter 5 as a beacon shedding light and hope on the dark reality that is death. Well, as we come to chapter 6 and verse 1 to 8, notice the link with chapter 5 and verse 32, the last verse of chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 32. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Sham, Ham, and Jephthah. Then look down to chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Our passage today is bracketed by these two verses about Noah. The name Noah sounds like the word for comfort or relief in the language of the Old Testament. His father Lamech lived in faith and therefore hoped that perhaps his son would be the one who would bring comfort or relief from the curse of death. 
So Lamech named his son Noah. And we will come to see if and how he brings relief from chapter 6 verse 9 to the end of chapter 8. But that will come next week. Lord permitting. For now, standing in our way are verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6. And the first thing we learn from this passage is this. Mercifully, the Lord limits human corruption. That's the first thing God is saying to us through his word. He limits human corruption. Now, I want to focus mainly on verse 5. I want to drill down on verse 5 in today's sermon. However, I'm aware that Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 4 are perhaps some of the most obscure and difficult verses in the whole Bible. They raise all sorts of tricky questions. So I want to briefly touch on them, but hopefully without getting too bogged down or distracted. And you may have questions about these verses afterwards. We are dealing here with prehistory. And so are given only bare bones to pick at. But here goes. As the human race increases, verse 1, we find the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of human beings, uh, the latter being such beautiful creatures according to verse 2. Now it is far from clear exactly who these male intruders were. And to cut a long story short, there are three main theories. But the majority view seems to be that they are some sort of heavenly or angelic beings, these sons of God. If you look at the book of Job, you'll see that expression used of heavenly beings in Job chapter 1. But in the words of one author, the picture here is of absolute or unqualified lust. What would give a fallen spirit more pleasure than having sex through the body of the demonized human body? And uh, 2 Peter 2 and Jude verses 5 to 8 seem to point in the direction of sexual relationships between human beings and demonic beings. And then in verse 4, Moses tell us, tells us that before and after these events, in verse 2, there were Nephilim on the earth, arguably between the time of Seth and the time of Noah. Clearly, the first readers knew who these Nephilim were because Moses does not feel the need to explain them. And the end of Numbers 13 seems to imply that they were giants of some kind. Think of Goliath, I suppose, in the Old Testament, who apparently was about nine feet tall. I think, however, that Moses is attempting to demythologize these heroes of old, or men of renown, as they are called in verse 4. Whatever you think they are, they are not in fact the product of these unnatural sexual unions between demons and humans. That's why I think Moses mentions them here. Notice that verse 4 does not actually or explicitly explicitly say they were the result of these unions in verse 2. However, in the ancient world, 
there were all sorts of mythological accounts of human origins that involved enormous humanoid-like beings. Gilgamesh, for example, is one well-known uh, character from the ancient world. Uh, could it be that the people of the ancient world did not so much transform myth into history, as is so often thought to be the case? Could it be rather that out from real history came certain myths? Uh, whatever the case, what we are reading in Genesis is real history from which certain myths developed, sprang over time. The fact is, whatever theory you opt for, the main thing to notice is that the Lord did not approve of the families of these women allowing these sexual unions to take place. He does not approve of the sons of God, whoever they were, engaging in the practices in verse 2. That is the main thing to hold on to in these verses. And that must become clear in verse 3, because the Lord limits the upper lifespan of human beings to 120 years to curtail this sinful, demonic practice and the corruption and the violence it led to on the face of the earth. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, because they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. In Genesis chapters uh, 2 to 4, objects, people and events, although real, seem to also carry or convey deeper spiritual significance. If you've been listening carefully, you would have picked that up as we've gone through these chapters. So it is possible that the ages of the people mentioned in chapter 5, although real and actual, are at the same time symbolic. For example, it is fascinating that Enoch lived for 365 years, if you go back and check in chapter 5. In other words, his life adds up to a recognized period of time, one whole or complete year. Despite not living as long as all the others mentioned in chapter 5, his life of walking with God was somehow rounded or complete, whole in some way. Notice also that all the characters in chapter 5 fall short of living for a thousand years. And a thousand years, which is 10 times 10 times 10, 10 to the power of 3, is in the Bible symbolic of a total amount of something, or perfect wholeness. It's used, for example, in Revelation 20 to describe the time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, the whole of human history. So Moses could be trying to tell us that all the men in Seth's line in chapter 5 lived a premature or incomplete life. Unlike Enoch, whose life in some way was complete or whole. And Methuselah, uh, having lived 969 years, fell 31 years short of a complete life, as it were. 
And after the flood, human lifespans steadily declined. So although Abraham, so Abraham lived 175 years, Joseph and Joshua 110, Moses 120. Moses would later, or at some point, write these words. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass away and we fly away. And of course in 2020, despite bold claims about beating cancer and the various medical advances that are extending our lifespans... Despite the fact that even uh, the 200 oldest men and women have lived between 110 and 122 years, just a couple of weeks ago, legendary actor Kurt Douglas died at the grand old age of 103. But he was unusual. Most of us in this room are unlikely to reach 100 years of age. The use of Botox liposuction, plastic surgery, and other beauty treatments simply put off the inescapable, inevitable, and unavoidable. And why? Well, because in his wisdom, the Lord has limited sin and corruption by lowering our lifespans. That's the first thing I think Moses is teaching us from this section of God's word. But secondly, the second reason for this is both apparent and therefore wise. And it is this. It is because your corruption and mine is universal, internal, absolute, and continual according to verse 5 of our passage. Your corruption is universal, internal, absolute, and continual. As much as it pains the Lord, according to verses 6 and 7, shortening human lifespans was not enough back in those days. He therefore goes for the nuclear option of undoing what he has created with a catastrophic flood. And the reasons for pressing the red button, as it were, are made clear in verse 5. Look at verse 5. We're going to camp out in verse 5 for the rest of our time this afternoon. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. If you are familiar with uh, the five points of Calvinism, or have come across the acronym TULIP, you will know that the T in TULIP stands for total depravity. This doctrine of total depravity, as stated in verse 5, is not saying that as human beings we are all incapable of doing anything good. That is obviously not the case. Moses deliberately uses exaggerated language to make a vitally important theological point. You and I, after all, are made in the image of God. I remember chapter 4, 
Even the ungodly line of Cain pioneered advances in industry, artistic expression, and technology. We human beings are capable of doing amazing, incredible things, good things. But notice that this verse is describing the human race as a whole and not just certain individuals within it. Our problem as a race is universal in scope, writes Moses. It includes every one of us here today, speaker and hearer alike. Verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race, literally the Adam, had become on the earth. The Adam, remember, is made up of both male and female. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, chapter 5 verse 1 and 2. But did you also notice that verse 5 includes the words wicked and evil? In its description of humanity, of you and me. The words wicked and evil in verse 5 don't mean what we in the 21st century tend to mean by them. Back in October 2017, the US president called for shooting in Las Vegas that left 50 people dead and hundreds injured as an act of pure evil. That tends to be how we think of evil. It is limited to certain acts or types of people. Al-Qaeda, suicide bombers, dictators, people involved in genocide, rape or paedophilia. These are the sorts of people or acts we tend to label as wicked or evil. But this is not how the God of the Bible sees things, nor indeed how he sees you and me. No, rather, as his research camera moves northwest towards Europe and then south towards the Americas and across Africa on its way to the Far East via Australasia, as he looks out across the sea of humanity he brought into being, he also sees evil and wickedness as a generic or universal problem. Now the wicked are mentioned an awful lot in the book of Psalms. And often they seem to labour under the mistaken notion, the delusion even, that what they keep hidden or harboured within is not seen by the Lord. Don't turn to it, but listen to how the psalmist Talks about this. How long, Lord, will the wicked be jubilant? They say the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Well, of course, the answer is yes, yes, yes. He does hear, he does see, and he will punish. So Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the Adam had become on the earth. 
I'm reading a book called Sapiens at the moment by a man named Harari. At over 450 pages long, it's supposed to be a brief history of humankind. Underpinning much of uh, the first hundred pages or so is an evolutionary understanding of humanity, of humankind. I think if you listen carefully to people with this kind of worldview, you will discover that often their assumption is that with enough education, financial, social and medical advances, humanity will improve itself both morally and socially. In the words of one a preacher and writer, the progressive is a utopian dreamer who believes in the perfectibility of man. You know those progressives you hear on the news or in being interviewed on television? The trouble with these dreamers is that their thinking permeates our mainstream media and news outlets. So when certain things happen, people will phone into radio stations and say things like, how could something like this happen in a civilized country like ours? I mean, this is England in 2020. In other words, surely as a species... We've evolved beyond such things as homophobia, sexism, or racism. Sadly, time and time and time again, our experience betrays such foolish optimism because it is based on a false, shallow understanding of our human condition. Verse 5 is here to teach us that it is vital that we don't put our faith in human nature. Because you will be disappointed in both yourself and those around you time and time and time again. Now the doctrine of total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. But it does mean across the board, universally speaking, humanity is essentially not good. You may be a nice person, but you are not good. At least, that is God's verdict. Every part of who you are as an individual is tainted by evil and wickedness. Again, I know it's not popular. But we need to drill down on this. Because most of us carry around with us a naive view of who we are and who other people are. Look at verse 5 again. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Did you hear it? Did you see it? The problem is not just a universal one. It is also an internal one. It begins with the very inclination of the thoughts of your heart. Not only does the Lord see, he sees right into the very workings of your heart. As the old cliche goes, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. In Old Testament understanding, the heart is neither simply where our emotions come from, 
nor a muscle that pumps blood around the body. No, the heart is the control center of the personality. Your heart is the core of who you are. Your heart is essentially you. It is the power station that drives your will, your attitudes, your intentions, as well as your emotions. It is the source of your thoughts, words, and actions. So the writer of Proverbs warns this. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because everything you do flows from it. And according to Moses, in chapter 6, verse 5, your heart and mine is evil and wicked. Uh, Turn with me a few pages to chapter 8 and verse 21 in your Bibles. It's on page 10. We discover that even after the flood, that saw only eight people rescued, the problem of the human heart still remains. Genesis 8, verse 21, the Lord said in his heart, ironically, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done by the flood. Jesus in the New Testament confirms that this is not simply Moses going off on one. His prognosis of the human heart is no different. Jesus says this, again don't look it up but listen. It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And then follows an ugly list. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. In John's Gospel that we're studying at the moment... Jesus is reported as saying this, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And Jesus isn't talking about planet Earth, he's talking about humanity. That's you and me. And yet there is more. It gets even more depressing. This problem does not just encapsulate All of humanity, whether male or female. It's not just universal. It's not just internal. Flowing from the very engine rooms of each of our personalities. It's also, thirdly, absolute. Look again at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. That word every. Every part of us and everything we do is always tainted such that our very inclinations, that is the frame of our minds, our motives, our desires, and therefore the actions that flow from them, although not as evil or wicked as they could be, none of it is ever completely pure or beyond prosecution. That is how all-encompassing sin has become. Its pollution and corruption has seeped into every part of our being. 
You, you heard about the floods both this weekend and last weekend. I heard a woman during the week talking about uh, the floods last weekend. And one of the things she says that is that water always finds a way. In other words, it seeped into every nook and cranny. Well, Moses said, that's just like sin. It seeps into every part of our being, both yours and mine. This is the sinfulness of sin. And you and I underestimate it in ourselves and others at our peril. According to one writer, mankind produces evil as a bee produces honey. And we know it if we're honest. We see it in ourselves and we see it in other people. We're just not very honest about it. But the wickedness and evil of the human race that God sees is not just universal. It's not just internal. It's not just absolute. The evil he sees in each of us is also continual or perpetual. Again, look at verse 5. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart are only evil all the time. Literally, only evil all the day. Think of a spring of gushing water. Or the tide relentlessly ebbing and flowing all day long. Or the earth all day long orbiting the sun like a constant, unending irrepressible, exponential, never-ending, gushing forth from within. That is God's verdict. His expert analysis of our human condition. The wickedness and evil he sees in you and me is universal. It's internal. It's absolute. And it's continual, perpetual. It's a depressing picture. But we need to look at ourselves in the mirror, brothers and sisters. And we need to go further. What will this look like at Gracious Broccoli? Well, perhaps you've heard the story of the rather obsessed, self-obsessed art student. This particular art student thought it was time to turn the conversation away from himself. And so he turned to the person he was talking to and said, that's enough about me now. Let's talk about you. Tell me, what do you think of me? Universally, you and I are seedbeds of evil. And in a way that is internal and therefore often unseen by others. But of course, always seen by the Lord. Our evil is absolute and continual. And for some of us, that will mean we are so self-absorbed, so self-obsessed, that we will struggle to see beyond ourselves and their own issues, concerns, and interests. For others of us, even in some of our most selfless, altruistic acts, there will always be some aspect of self-glorification, self-gratification, and self-promotion. One ancient writer wrote this about envy. It is in the character of very few people to honor without envy a friend who has prospered. 
you know, that friend who has just announced her engagement or, or got that promotion at work and your heart sinks when you hear the good news because you think, why them? Why not me? Uh, the following is a quote from a man, one of those progressives who once believed in the perfectibility of humanity. He wrote this, It is precisely when you consider the best in man that you see there is in each of us a hard core of pride or self-centeredness which corrupts our best achievements and blights and blights our best experiences. It comes in all sorts of ways. And then he goes on to list some of those ways. It's seen in the jealousy that spoils certain relationships. In the vanity we feel when we've done something that we think is, well, pretty good, pretty darn good. Even if we say so ourselves. In the all too easy perversion of love into lust. In the meanness that makes us criticize, depreciate or belittle the efforts of others to make ourselves look better or feel better. In the willful distortion of our own judgments because of self-interest. In our fondness for flattery, both giving it and receiving it. In our resentment, even when we are rightly blamed for something. And in our self-assertion of high ideals that we never ourselves even begin to put into practice. It's an ugly picture, isn't it? And yet I recognize myself, and I reckon you recognize yourself. I watched a debate some months ago with an atheistic biblical scholar, believe it or not. In fact, she's a professor of Hebrew, Bible, and ancient religion. And during the debate, she said this, I believe in the goodness of people. It's a noble, if misplaced, sentiment. Because today's passage wants us to land squarely in verse 8. Look at verse 8. That is, not so much looking to or trusting in the goodness of our humanity, but rather looking to God. Look at verse 8. But, but, Noah found favor, that is, grace, kindness, in the eyes of the Lord. If you are not a Christian here today, you need the kindness, the grace, the favor, the undeserved mercy of God in your life. See, the God Noah trusted in was and is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John's Gospel, John reminds us that grace and truth came into this world through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God himself come in the flesh. He died on the cross 2,000 years ago, taking upon himself all our corruption, our total depravity as it were. And then he rose again, offering you and me life in all its fullness with him both now and forever. Given our condition, 
This is an offer that none of us can afford to refuse or to not go on accepting day by day, week by week, month by month. All you need to do is put your trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for you and all your guilt is dealt with. And the corruption that is Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 is forgiven. Wiped clean away. 